Thank you all for being here this morning. It's a delight. Moreover, it's an honor to get to teach uh, uh, the passages of Scripture that we've got this morning. We are coming from the book of Amos in the Minor Prophets. And a lot of you are aware of that because I taught on Amos already. And, and David Capes taught a little bit on Amos as well. And so whenever you do things like that and people know Amos is going to be taught, there's a different reaction with a lot of people. Some of you react just by coming, and that's wonderful. Some of you who aren't here react by not coming. Not my favorite reaction, but it's okay. I understand. There are times where I don't come either. Some of you uh, uh, react by reading Amos ahead of time. I was, uh, I, I try to get here early enough to visit with a section and Today was my this section going back toward the back, and someone was over here. Uh, I think it was Monty was reading Amos, and I thought that's just delightful. And then some of you react by sending me these horrible little emails, <laughs> Dale Hearn, that have these horrible songs, <laughs> Dale Hearn, that get stuck in your mind. That's a different Amos, Dale. <laughs> We're going to look at the Old Testament prophet Amos, not to be confused with Jerry Reed's Amos Moses. <clears throat> We're going to do this in an unusual three points. I am a three-point guy. I like three points in what I do. We're going to look at the passages in the context in which they were written. We're going to look at the passages in the context of our life and now. And then at the end, of course, we'll have points for home. Now, the reason this is going to be slightly different is because the, 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 each of the passages, as I look at them, I'm actually going to do the passages then and now at the same time. So really, I only have two points, but I'm calling it three, because otherwise I get a rash that starts right back here. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, we started looking at a set of passages in Amos that followed a very typical poetic formula. It's very typical. You'll find it in Proverbs. You'll find it in other ancient cultures that were similar to Israel. To have a formula where you'll give a number and then you'll add one to it. And so, for example, the one that I used here was Amos 1.3, which sort of begins that section. In Amos 1.3, it begins, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions and for four. When I was young, those passages used to bother me. Because I didn't understand biblical inerrancy very well. See, that, uh, I, I, was, I was having uh, dinner with a, a, a judge who's a very devout Jew. And we were, ta and we were talking about uh, how he teaches at his uh, synagogue in, in classes and stuff. And talking about mine. And we were talking about some biblical passages. And I used the term inerrancy. And he said, I'm not familiar with that term. Inerrancy is a term, it it's kind of breaks down, it's, it's the idea of inerrancy. And errancy is rooted in that term error. And inerrancy means no error. And when I was young, I thought inerrancy meant that you can read this with great precision and take everything exactly literally. And, and I didn't understand that that's not the best understanding of inerrancy. The best understanding of inerrancy that I've ever seen is the one that I believe to be true. And it is this. 
that God's scriptures, as they were originally written, perfectly reflected and communicated what God wanted communicated. In other words, we can try to find and figure out the original and we can know what it is that God had to say. And then we can accept it. Now, the reason that's a different definition is several fold. First of all, it means sometimes God's allowed to speak in poetry. And we can read it. And if we understand it as poetry, we're understanding it the way God intended it. It means sometimes God is communicating in ways that we think the ways we perceive. So when you read in the Psalms that the sun rises and the sun sets and the earth stands still, that's not a science statement. That's God talking in language that the listeners at that time perceived. They perceived the sun rising. We still use the expression today because it's still what we perceive. When is the sunrise today? When does the sun set today? Well, the sun isn't doing either of them. The earth is just spinning around. But that's the way it's perceived. So, so to try to read and understand Scripture in the way God intended means it transforms things. But when I was young, before I understood that, I thought, well, this looks like an error. Is it three or is it four? Well, no, that's, a, that's an expression. That's a poetic expression. And if I'm going to sit there and count it out, I'm going to make a mistake. Especially on this one because the God only has one. He gives one. In the, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I won't revoke the punishment. Where are they? They threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. That's the one he gives. But if we read it to understand it within its culture and within its time, we not only see the poetry involved, the typical way of saying something, which means for good reason, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do it for good reason. In fact, for more than good reason. That might even be a better translation for us. To say, I have good reason to do this. In fact, I have more than good reason. You know, I, I can tell you five reasons. I can give you ten. That type of an idea is there. But there's more to it, I believe, within Amos by the numbers that are chosen. Because that number three was also not simply one, two, three. Not simply a numeral not simply a quantity, but it was a reference to the divine world. And so when God says for three transgressions, he means for three transgressions or rebellions, word means rebellion as well, for three rebellions against God, the divine. I'm going to bring judgment. And then he, he says for four and four was a, wor a number that also had a reference to the earthly world. The four corners of the earth, the four winds, the four elements, the four, you know, four was considered an earthly number. So God's saying, these are sins that offend heaven and these are sins that offend earth. This is a rebellion against heaven with heavenly consequences and it's one with earthly consequences. And all of that's wrapped up in that three and four. And so we looked at one of those two weeks ago, but I want to look at more of them now. So let's go to Amos chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab this time, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I'll send a fire upon Moab. Now I'll, I'm willing to wager. Okay, not like 
hey, let's bet money. That's, I'll leave that to Mattress Mike Mac. But I'm, I'm willing to wager uh, bragging rights that most of you have never had a Bible class taught on, I'm not revoking the punishment because he burned alive the bones of the king of Edom. Now, maybe some of you have, but I'll bet most have not. Because I look at that, and I got to be candid, that strikes me as a bit bizarre. I mean, it just doesn't seem right. There's something fuzzy here. Honestly, God's not going to revoke the punishment, and it's a punishment against heaven as well as earth. Three and four, that you have burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So my undergraduate degree is from Lipscomb University. It was David Lipscomb College at the time. And I, I got it in Greek and Hebrew. Hebrew and Greek, actually. I took more Hebrew than Greek. Hebrew and Greek. And I mean, you look at my diploma. I have a Bachelor's of Art in Biblical Languages, it was called. But I had another major as well. I wanted to be able to preach within the church I grew up in. And to do that, we didn't have seminaries per se. We had these Christian schools where you would go and you would get a preaching degree. And so you'd have to take basically a seminary load of material with your undergraduate class. So you wind up graduating with like gazillions of hours. I wanted that, so I pursued that as well. And it had a different set of required classes. And one of the classes I was required to take was called Practical Aspects of Preaching. That was the title of the class. I was kind of excited. I wanted to be a practical preacher. I didn't want to be impractical. Heaven forbid, I preach on a Sunday and I get an email. That was very impractical. (laughs) I would like it to be practical. Dale Hearn has been insistent since I taught church history to have points for home at the end because it's practical. Steve Taylor, who influenced so much of my teaching, was always adamant, tie it into scripture at the end. Why? Because it's practical, that tie, that bridge. They're right, but that's not what I learned in practical aspects of preaching. That class had really two things they taught you. You want to know? How to do a wedding and how to do a funeral. (laughs) As if everything else you do as a preacher is impractical. Only practical thing you're doing is the weddings and the funerals. The funeral part was really interesting. Because in a funeral, you were taught that there are two things you really need to do in the service. Thing one... You need to recount the life that has passed on. And you do that to uncover the range of emotions that go with that life. So you talk about things that are touching. You talk about things that are humorous. You you express and have that period of time where as a gathering... You recall and honor the life of the deceased. Point one. Thing two, you affirm the faith. You affirm that this life is not it. This life is the beginning. Death is not the end. It's a graduation, if you will. It's a new chapter. And so those are the two things we were taught. And and I think both of those are extremely important. And if you do one without the other, the funeral is empty. It's interesting, one of the we had three assignments in that class, by and large, and they were to write or three assignments related to this subject. We had to write three different funerals. One for you guys. 
one for an infant. And one for a really good lady who lived down the street and was an avowed atheist. Those were the three funerals we had to write. But every funeral we wrote included speaking of the value of that life that has passed and how important it is. Because it's extremely important. How we speak and treat the dead is a statement of how we view the living. When we honor those who have passed before us, we not only show them honor, but they become the inspiration for us to do better. When we show honor to the people who passed before us, we do so to the glory of God the Father. And we show honor to Him who created all people. But it's not just a heavenly honor we're showing, it's an earthly consequence as well because it should inspire us. It should move us in pity. It should move us in, in ways that, that make us focus on what our life is about. And everybody who attends a funeral or everybody who traipses through a cemetery should have a time of, of, of honoring and respecting what life is about. Friday was Veterans Day. Rightfully so, we honor the veterans, the people who put their lives on the line in service for our freedoms. Rightly so. Rightly so. My father served in the Navy. Uh, I spent some time yesterday with Pastor Jarrett's father. He served a long time in the Army. Or no, Air Force. Uh, I was with Kevin Roberts, my brother-in-law, yesterday. His father recently passed. He was an Army vet. And it's right to honor those, but it's right to also honor the people around us who have passed. And that means you don't dig someone up just because you're mad at them and burn their bones to turn it into lime to spite them. That bothers God? Yeah, that bothers God. Because God's about us understanding value and honor in life. We should be inspired. We should be changed and transformed by the transience of life. We should never be people who just callously disregard the dead. I'm not sure you've heard classes on that, but there it is. It's the reason when you go to a cemetery, you don't just randomly pick out a plot and throw your picnic lunch down there. I think I'll sit on this poor fellow's grave. I can enjoy this food. He can't. <laughs> don't do that. I mean, that's an absurd example, but that's not the way we live, okay? Let's keep going because there's more to this in Amos, and so I don't want to get bogged down. Amos 2.4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I won't revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord. They haven't kept his statutes. Their lies have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked. Now, this is the northern kingdom that's hearing this message. That's Samaria. That's Israel. This is not the southern kingdom of Judah. This is the civil war breakoff from Judah. And I'm sure they were sitting around saying, yeah, Judah, they're bad people. But if you look at Judah at the time and you go up to someone, I won't use you, Dr. Hank. You're too, too fine a person. I'll use your wife. You go up to someone. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'll use Larry Shillette. Uh you go, you, you go up to someone and you, you say to them, hey, um, are you purposefully a horrible person? And clearly, none of those people I was using are horrible people. Um, 
But most people aren't going to sit there and go, yeah, I am. I'm a reprobate. I try real hard to be the worst person I can be. My name's Amos Moses. I live in an alligator swamp. I mean, they, that, that, that's not the way people are. But all of us have a tendency in our brains to do something that social scientists call confirmation bias. You've heard me talk about it before. Confirmation bias is seeking or interpreting evidence in ways that support what we already believe. You want confirmation bias on steroids? We've been in a political season. And I'll guarantee you, every one of us who have made up their minds politically will interpret evidence, and they'll interpret arguments, and they'll interpret media to support what they already believe. And if it's not what they already believe, they just write it off. Well, it's fake news. And, and I'm not saying that from the left or the right. I'm saying everybody's doing it all over the spectrum, including me. It's something we always have to guard against. See, confirmation bias in a picture is this. Here are the facts. Here are my beliefs. Now, somewhere those two merge together. And where they merge together, this merger area is what I'll pay attention to. That is what I'll grab hold of. I'm going to ignore the stuff that may be true, but it doesn't fit with my beliefs. And we do that in so many ways. It's not just in politics. It's not just in what we buy. It's how we treat sin. You see, if you had asked the people of Judah, are you... Walking in lies. Are you not keeping God's statutes? Instead, you're just lying about it. Is your brain so clouded by lies? And I don't, I think they'd say, no, 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 no. Well, what about this? Well, that's not important. I'm after the important things for God. And they'd find this way to excuse. Look, we can rationalize almost anything. You give me something that's really important to me, and it can violate the rules and laws and commands of God. And I'll still figure out why it's okay for me. You say, well, yeah, you're a lawyer. Of course you can do that. No, I could do it before I was a lawyer. <laughs> Blaise Pascal, the heart is deceitful above all things. So we got to figure out what are true and what's not true. And we're going to need the Holy Spirit's work to do that in our life. And it's one reason we need to be tuned in and softened to the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you this. I'm really good at telling the difference between truth and lies as long as someone else is involved. I can, I can point out every problem you've got. It's just myself. I've got the blind spots. And I need the Holy Spirit to come convict me of that sin and righteousness and judgment. All right, we got to keep going or I'm going to get too bogged down. Um, next one. Let's look at Amos 2.6. Oh, well, time out. So here's where we were. Remember, this is the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos has left the southern kingdom of Judah down here and gone up to the northern kingdom of Israel to do this prophesying. So he goes up there, and he if you follow, if you actually map out these for three and for four, and God's bringing all this judgment, he starts out, God's judging these people up here, God's judging these people over here, God's going to judge these people up here in Tyre, he's going to judge these people over here in Edom, he's going to judge, he's even judging them in Judah. And I'm sure the people of Israel, Samaria, are hearing all of this thinking, yeah, yeah. They are bad dudes. They're bad dudes. They're bad dudes. Even Judah. That's why we had to secede from them. They're bad dudes. And then at the very end, he says, now, 
let's talk about you. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I won't revoke the punishment. See, we're real good at seeing sin in other people. It's just real hard to see it in ourselves. One of the best examples of this is King David. He commits adultery with Bathsheba and he covers it up by having her husband killed. So there's no one to say it wasn't the husband who fathered the child. Because in his adultery, Bathsheba got pregnant. And the husband was away on military duty. David knew whose child it was and so did Bathsheba. Brought the husband back to try to get the husband to cover it up blindly himself. And when the husband refused to have carnal relations with his wife because all the other people were all fighting, David just figured out how to get him killed. Nathan the prophet comes up to King David. And he doesn't come up to David and say, David, look at how many of the Ten Commandments you have busted. Thou shalt not commit adultery, wrong. Thou shalt not kill, wrong. Thou shalt not bear false witness, I ain't really doing that too. No, David would have been on the, David would have said, well, this is different. And he'd have figured out how to rationalize it. So instead, Nathan comes up to him. And tells him the story about some other poor fella who had one little sheep. This sheep was a family pet. One sheep. A neighbor has gazillions of sheep. The neighbor has a guest come over and wants to feed the guest some lamb. But instead of killing one of his gazillions, he just goes and grabs the sheep, the family pet of his neighbor. Kills him to feed. David's livid. David says, Are you, this happened in my kingdom? I want to know who it was. You tell me who it was. That fellow deserves to die. That's when Nathan said, oh, it's you. You didn't get it. That was a metaphor for what you've done with Bathsheba. And all of a sudden, David is, is destroyed. You know, we're real good at seeing it in others. But look at what's going on here. For three transgressions for Israel and for four, I won't revoke the punishment. Because what were they doing? They sell the righteous for silver. That's slave trade. Human trafficking. They sell the needy. For a pair of sandals. Now, Greg pointed out to me that, that some think that this is sandals that were used in a court of law as, as kind of uh, your court cost or something that were taken. I don't know that it is here. We'll see that again in a minute with a cloak, but, but I don't know that it is here. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. That's what they were doing. And this makes me really pause for a moment and say, how do I live my life? Because that's okay, I haven't, I cannot remember the last time I sold the needy for a pair of sandals. I don't even wear sandals. Much. I try not to trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. I try to cut them up broad swath. I try not to turn aside the way of the afflicted. But we shouldn't just focus this as a list. We should try to look at the motivation in the heart. Because the list may not be there. But where is my heart? 
there was a fella about 600 years ago um, who grew up in a really wealthy home. This happened in Italy. Oh, get rid of that. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Boom, boom. Okay, back to this. This happened in Italy. And the fellow's dad was a really successful merchant. He traded in cloth. And so he'd buy cloth. He'd have cloth made. He'd sell cloth. This sweater, this one of his. Okay, well, not really. This is not 600 years old. But I mean, that's what he did. And he was mega successful. And he'd made all this money. And he had a young son. I uh, didn't have necessarily the greatest relationship with his son, but uh, he had a he, he had a relationship with him, and 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 the son was set to inherit dad's business, and dad gives him a little bit of an interest in the business to figure out how to run it, and the kid has a conversion moment, and in the conversion moment, do you know what he did? He took everything his dad had given him with the business and he sold it. And he gave the money away to the poor. And his dad was livid. Nearly disowned him. But the fellow went on to really change the lives of a lot of people. His name, as you know it, is St. Francis Assisi. He's the one, as we pull into the Christmas season, that first did nativity scenes. He founded an order, a monastic order of like-minded people who would make a vow to poverty because they wanted to live for other people. Becky and I have a friend. In fact, this class has a friend. He's been here before who is a Franciscan monk. His name's John Michael Talbot. And St. Francis said a prayer that John Michael put to music. Now, by the way, here's the development of a slide in this class. Started out with just, oh, here it is. That's a CC. That's where St. Francis is from. Then I was just going to plaster the prayer up there. I thought, well, wait a minute. I'm going to talk about John Michael. I'll plaster the prayer up there. And I thought, well, this prayer is pretty holy. And John Michael looks goofy there. That just doesn't seem to fit. So I'll change it and I'll put a more sedate John Michael. And I thought, well, you know, if you're going to do it, John Michael sings the prayer. It is worth the three and a half minutes for you and I to pray the prayer. So I'm going to play the prayer as John Michael has sung it. I'll put the lyrics up there where you can read them. But I would ask you to make this a prayer of your heart for just a minute. Because this transforms who we are into who we should be. We got sound? Thank you. 
I hope you see the difference. God give us this wisdom. Give us this heart. Not to step on the downtrodden. Not to bypass the afflicted. Not to figure out how to get a sandal off of selling someone. Or not to take advantage of someone over here. But to try to figure out what the needs are of other people. And how we can meet them in the name of our divine master and savior. To his glory. And to his credit, not our own. We become those people. And God will change this world through what we're doing. All right. Next. Amos 2, 14 through 16. I mean, the Rocky movies are classics. Let's just get it out in the open right now. It's like some of the best cinema there's ever been. I mean, it's like classic, okay? That's Clubber Lane, a.k.a. Mr. T. I don't know if you saw it or not. He's pretty braggadocious in that film. He takes everybody apart until Rocky's finally accepts in humility the need to change some things, and Rocky transforms who he is as a boxer and who he is as a person And then Clubber Lane's arrogance becomes his downfall. That's in Amos. God says in Amos 2, 14 through 16, Flight shall perish from the swift. You think you're good at running? You think you're fast? Flight will perish. The strong won't retain his strength. The mighty won't save his life. The one who handles the bow isn't even going to be able to stand up. And the one who's swift of foot won't save himself. The one who rides a horse, whoops, won't save his life. And the one who's stout of heart among the mighty will flee away naked in that day. If you think, and I think, that what we are and what we do is going to be our comfort and salvation, we will all be sorely disappointed. Scripture teaches over and over and over, from Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament, New Testament, from Moses to David and his Psalms to the prophets to the Lord Jesus and his apostles. 
all teach God opposes the proud and the arrogant and the haughty. But God lifts up the humble. I mean, just like, which street do you want to live on? What's going to be the marker of your life when they ask for your address? Is your address one that tries to impress people? Is your address one that, 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 that tries to build you up? Is that what you're going to tell people is your life? What makes you feel important? What makes you feel loved? What makes you feel accepted? Or are you going to find yourself rooted in an identity of Jesus Christ and let him be the defining street on which your heart lives? There's just a difference here. Look, I'd love to just stand up here and tell you all Christmas goodies right now. But you've been around the block. You know as well as I do that this is a tough life at times. And that there's sin and there's hurt and there's pain and there's anguish. And the, 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 the way to walk through that is in the power of the Lord. And that will give meaning and significance to life. But if you try to walk through it on your own, you're destined for a fall. I want to show you another passage that's closely related to this. It's in Amos 2, verses 7 and 8. And it comes before that one. But this is the predicate to the arrogance. My holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments, Greg, taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. This is what they were using their court system for. They'd take the poor people to court. And the poor people can't afford anything. They'd just take their cloak. Said, well, hey, it's your debt. You owed me. I'll take your cloak. And then they'd take the cloak and they'd go to the temple and spread it out there for their temple time. It's like going to the poor people and taking the only clothes they've got and bringing them to church and spreading them out so that you can have a little more comfortable seat. That's what they were doing. And God says, that profanes my holy name. That violates the character of who I am. I mean, God told them very clearly in Exodus 22, verses 25. Look what he said. He said, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, don't be like a money lender to him. Don't take interest from him. And if you ever, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, collateral, return it to him before the sun goes down. Whoops. Hold on, I turned it off. Return it to him before the sun goes down. For that's his only covering. I've done something. And Brent has restored life. Thank you, Brent. I mean, God was pretty clear. And they're just, they, they don't have the heart of God for the poor. It's all gimme, gimme, gimme. And it's so infiltrated that they don't even have justice courts. They've got kangaroo courts now. <laughs> you know, this was talked about by Bob Dylan in his Infidels album. <laughs> Bob Dylan has a song, I and I. It's a takeoff of uh, Martin Buber's I and Now, if you read... Jewish German philosophers of the 1920s. Bob Dylan's got a song, I and I, and here's the, the, the verse. Took an untrodden path once where the swift 
don't win the race, Amos. Swift ain't going to get you there. It goes to the worthy who can divide the word of truth. We're going to walk right. It took a stranger to teach me. This is an interesting personal commentary. So a stranger, uh, uh, a goy to a Hebrew, Bob Dylan's Jewish. Um, uh, a goy is a stranger is a reference to the Gentiles. And uh, Bob Dylan's process of finding Jesus as Messiah included uh, not just Jewish people who believe, like Keith Green, but, but included uh, uh, Goyim, us. Um, it took a stranger to teach me to look into justice's beautiful face, not kangaroo justice, to see an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that, that was the law. But the law is there with mercy as well, which is what we just read out of Exodus 22. So to see it in its fullness. So I put that down there because, and then the chorus, I and I, God being the great I am and I being an individual. That's the riff off of I and thou, which is Martin Buber's book. I and I in creation where one's nature neither honors nor forgives both sides of that coin. I and I, one says to the other, no man sees my face and lives. God's behind all of this. And we need to pay attention. So I wrote that. I mean, I put that in here and I thought, you know, I just got to put that in there. And then I thought, well, Dale Hearn's going to email me and say, well, why didn't you just play it? Sing it. It's Mark Knopfler on guitar on that album, by the way. It's just <laughs> um, Amos 3.1. I think I'm going to pause here and not hit this one um, because, uh, because I want to get to the points for home uh, and uh, try to do a little more on them. One, first point I want to go back to. Their lies have led them astray. It's so fascinating to look at that as God's pronouncement. Their lies have led them astray. See, I get led astray by my own lies. It's that confirmation bias stuff. It's grabbing a hold of what I want, what supports what I want to do. And cavalierly disregarding what I don't. And if I can't be honest with myself, I will be led astray by my own lies. And I am absolutely convinced it takes the Spirit of God to help pierce and to show us this. And that is my prayer. I asked Miss Carolyn this morning, I said, how are you doing? And she said something along the lines of, um, not as good as I'd like, or not as good as I will be, but better than I was. Is that what she said? Something like that. I thought, that's just, that's it. That's my prayer. God, please help me see and give me the discernment to get beyond what I am right now. Next, I've got to spend more time listening to that John Michael Talbot song. That needs to be on repeat. That needs to be in my head instead of Amos Moses. 
Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. I don't want to be those who trample the head of the poor. I want to be those who find the poor and say, how can I help the poor? I don't want to be someone who blithely walks around someone in pain. If I see someone in pain, I want to be the person who says, how do I help this person in pain? We're all on a road to Jericho, to use Jesus' Good Samaritan parable. We're all on a road to Jericho. And when we come upon someone who's got a need, the goal is not to walk around them and take the long way around and stay on our business. If God has put someone in your road in need, then what you need to do is try to figure out how to help them within the power that you've got to do so. God doesn't accidentally have them on your road. Speaking of roads, which street do we live on? He who is stout of heart among the mighty, going to run away with nothing on but the TV. Naked. Okay. Those are the lessons today from the minor prophet of Amos, who is speaking major to my heart. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? And now I look forward to seeing you again next Sunday. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you a repentant people seeking your Holy Spirit to convict us. But Father, we also come before you with joy because we know that you do speak to us. You desire to make us more than we are now. You have disclosed your face to us by becoming flesh. Jesus, Lord God, we see you there. So transform who we are. May we in humility, with no pride and no arrogance and no self-worth, confidence based on who we are or what we're doing. May we come before you in humility, made great only by the cross of Christ and your love for us. Transform us, Lord. We are yours through Jesus, our Lord. Amen.